1: Hello, I'm Georgie Corrish-Cole, ShowLux's founder and editor, and welcome to today's In Conversation with podcast. I am thrilled to be joined by Julia Hart today. I'm sure many of you know of Julia. She is a self-made businesswoman, designer, and best-selling author. She's also really a TV star. She was raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, and at the age of 42, she fled changed her name, and without any formal education or background in fashion, launched her career as a designer with her namesake, Shoe Collection. This summer, Julia literally took the world by storm, including my world, with her Netflix hit series, My Unorthodox Life. Welcome. Um, wh- when did the first series It was come last out?
0: summer. I think it was July 14th, maybe? July 12th? Mm-hmm. Somewhere around there in July. Okay.
1: For people who are watching, Julia is sitting there with a the Starbucks cup, which yeah. I think I'm never without a can of Diet Coke. And yeah. Julia is never without a Starbucks cup anyway. So just it's true. just to it's not true. let people But do down. you want to laugh? This is not
0: actually from Starbucks. So during the pandemic, I miss my Starbucks coffee so much, I recreated a Starbucks in my apartment. So I have Starbucks coffee, Starbucks cups, Starbucks cup holders, the whole nine yards. They're sugar-free syrups. And I make my own coffee and I happen to use their cups still. Because- uh, and you're so teeny tiny. The cup <laughs> is, is almost the size of your head. So the funny thing is it's Starbucks coffee made in my home and not in the Starbucks. I love
1: it. I don't drink coffee and so I wish I did. for a long time. I wish I did just so I could carry around Ugh, Starbucks. I love, I need my coffee. That's need right. your coffee. I need my diet cake. Well, anyway, back to <laughs> you and not Starbucks coffee. Can you talk to us about your early life? You were born in Russia, I believe. You're one of yeah. eight. Um, can you yeah, talk to us about your childhood and your upbringing? So,
0: you know, uh, I don't really remember Russia. All I remember of Russia is great. You know, the first time I had a fruit, I was living in Italy. So, um, you know, I'd never had it. i have never, I'd never tasted a fruit. Um, they just weren't. Available when I was growing up in Russia. And so my parents and I were traded for grain. My father had been arrested for practicing Judaism in Russia. Um, And the government in the United States, very similarly to what they're doing now with Ukraine, where you have all of these economic sanctions against Russia for what they're perpetrating against the Ukrainians. It was very similar when we came out of Russia. There were economic sanctions made against Russia for their civil rights abuses and their anti-Semitism. And so there was this bill passed in the United States called the uh, Varek Bill, Vaneck Bill, and Jackson Vaneck Bill. And uh, basically, it traded Jews for grain. They made a grain embargo against the Russian government for their abuse of Jews. And then they started trading Jews for grain. So my father and I was taken out of prison, and my family and I were traded, literally, for grain. And that process was going from Moscow to Vienna for six or nine months, and then from uh, an internment camp in Vienna to a processing center in Rome. Um, And from there, you had to be adopted by a Jewish community in the United States. And so... The Jewish community of Austin, Texas, adopted us, and that's how my life in this country started. I was literally traded wow. for grain,
1: so the grain went to Russia, you and went the to the U.S., came out, and, and, and and God, that's fascinating. And why why did this? You're obviously totally fabulous, but why did this <laughs> why did this family in the U.S. want you? Other than the obvious, perhaps they couldn't well, have a family.
0: It's not a family; it's a community. Meaning. You had to be supported by a community so that the government, the U.S. government, would know that you wouldn't go on welfare, that you wouldn't be onerous to the American system. So to come into this country, someone needed to, quote unquote, adopt you, but not a family, a community. So it was the conservative and reform Jewish communities of Austin, Texas that adopted my family. When we came in, we were met by a representative of the Jewish community um, at the airport. I'll never forget it. Um, what age were you? I was five years old because it took us two years in between us leaving and actually getting to the United States. I left when I was three. I came here when I was around five and, um, I'll never forget her because she was wearing this like very bohemian loose flowy thing and her hair was just wild and fabulous. And I was five at the time. And I remember her so well, she was wearing this like off the shoulder dress. And she gave me a piggy bank and told me that I should start saving for my future, and I loved it because I felt like she was treating me like an adult. And so I was well, a very she was a Jewish woman, right? Yeah, she was. She was from the Jewish community, and she was a person who met us at the airport. Then they rented us an apartment, um, and both my parents went to work for IBM. So within a year, they had paid back. The Jewish community, every dollar that the community had spent on us, and my parents, for many years and probably still to this day, give charity to the organization that brought us to this country.
1: Well, that's an amazing story, not one I expected to hear today. <laughs> um, and why? Why did they bring you over? Presumably because they they were aware of the hardship Jews were going through in Russia, and it was correct humanitarian exactly aid, right. essentially.
0: It was exactly what's happening now. It was economic sanctions to punish Russia for civil rights violations. The exact same thing that's happening now. Now I think it's called the Malevsky Bill. Then it was the Jackson Bannock Bill. But the idea mm-hmm. was the same hurt countries with economic sanctions rather than with rifles and, and people. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so were you part of a community? Were you given, you know, did you live... Did everybody that they brought over to this area of Texas, did you live within a community? And I think, you know, I, I don't want to sound really basic, but, you know, I've seen my Orthodox life. I, I know a lot of Jewish people who... there are different extremes like there are in all religions right in every religion of course yeah you think of the hard time that muslim people have been given so wrongly were you put into a community and did you all live together in close proximity so i was the
0: one and only family the one and only russian family in texas it was just us
1: but you were all jewish
0: well it was one family my father my mother and myself Oh, that That's was it. it. That's it. The rest of my siblings were born in this country, so it was just the three of us. Okay. And uh, my next sibling is ten years younger than I am, and I have seven more siblings. So, Amazing. ten years younger than I am, eleven years younger than I am. Your mother's bonkers. Than I am. She's taken. My mother gave birth to my youngest brother six months after I delivered Bat my oldest daughter. So I have an uncle who is younger than his niece. A How old was, was your mother when she gave daughter.
1: birth to your brother? Her
0: last baby, she was 46. Okay, that gives me she hope. Gives birth hope. in three decades, her 20s, her 30s, and her 40s.
1: Wow, what a woman. Um, what was your childhood then like growing up in Texas? Was it a... Was Texas it a- was
0: amazing. It was so fun. You know,
1: um, I
0: started off in public school. And uh, then the state of new York had uh, state of Texas created this test. I don't think it exists anymore, but you know, they had been fighting integrating the schools between blacks and whites. Now, of course, I didn't know any of this. I was a five year old Russian kid. And so the federal government had forced Texas to do busing, right? to mix the schools. So it was not just black schools and white schools. they were going to be mixed. And so they came up with this test. And so instead of children going to school by color or by where they live, it would be if you got X mark, you would go to that school. If you go X mark, you go to that school. That's how I understood it from what I was told. And so I take this test and in my book, I write, I got one of the highest scores because I didn't want anyone to come back and yell at me. My father has always told me that I got the highest score in the state of Texas, but I was afraid to write that because I can't confirm it. I don't even know how to check it. I just wrote one of, so no one could accuse me of lying. But nice. My parents told me that I got the highest mark in the state of Texas. And because of that, I was noticed by this very wealthy financier in Texas. Because don't forget, we're in this first Russian family. There'd never been a Russian family in Texas. We're talking early 1970s, pre Gorbachev, pre Perestroika. There are just no Russians there. Um, and so. And were you known more as a
1: Russian family or a Jewish family? Oh, Russian both? And Jewish.
0: Although it's funny that you ask that because when I moved to Muncie and, you know, my world changed and I got locked into a ghetto and a shtetl, then I was a Russian. When I was in Russia, I was a Jew. When I was in the most extremist, fundamentalist Jewish community, I was a
1: Russian. You were Russian.
0: So it was like, can't fit in anywhere. In oh, Russia, they hated win. me Can because I? I was Jewish. In my community, they hated me because I was Russian. It was just a lose-lose all around. <laughs>
1: Well, but in the Texas, school wanted you. This financier saw something in you. In and, Texas, and what, yes. Im, what, what impact did they have?
0: And he got me into this incredible private school in Texas, in Austin. I was their only Jew, their token Jew. There was one Black person and one Jewish person. I was a Jew. Um, everyone else was, you know, waspy as can be, white Anglo Saxon Protestant. And this guy really fought for me to go into the school because originally the school didn't want to take me. They said, we've managed to keep Jews out. All these years, we're not making an exception for anyone. And so, but this guy didn't get up. He got the governor involved. And lo and behold, I got into the school. And even though you would think, knowing that story, knowing I'm the only Jew there, I would feel awkward or uncomfortable. That school was probably the place I felt most at home until I left my community 40 years later.
1: And so you went through school. You're, you know, clearly you're very bright, you got married at 19. I guess before we get onto that, how strict, because you then ended up in Muncie in a very strict community, yeah. um, which must have been a huge contrast, but what? how strict did you, what kind of a Jew were you, if that's not the wrong terminology, no. up until that point where you got married?
0: So you have to understand, as you said, there's a thousand gradations of Judaism. Mm -hmm. And there's so much beauty inherent in the customs, in the culture, in the religion, just like I think there's great beauty to be found in any religion. Mm. The issues that I've always had is with the extremism. It's with archaic laws that destroy women. And I have never assumed that was Judaism. And I think the proof of that is that the same rules that made my life so miserable, that a woman is responsible for a man's sins, that she has to hide and cover herself so that a man wouldn't sin, that a woman is defined by her biology, and that just because she's a woman, her purpose in life is already set, obedient wife, subservient wife, and maker of children, and her purpose, all women are supposed to do the same thing, all women are supposed to put on the, are put on this earth to serve men, and those kind of rules—cover yourself, serve men—you find in fundamentalist Islam, in fundamentalist. I was just about to say. I mean, uh, yeah. Mormonism. I was going to say
1: it's just archaic, isn't it? And it's the, that's it. It's the other end of the spectrum that's not modernizing the times, has and... nothing to do with Judaism
0: because yeah, yeah, yeah. those rules apply in every fundamentalist absolutely. religion, yeah, meaning absolutely. Islam has as much beauty as Judaism does. And yeah. has as much beauty as Christianity does. It's when you take any of those to the extreme that you get into big danger. Yeah. And it's because these archaic concepts that women are put on this earth to serve men, that women are responsible for men's behavior.
1: Yeah. These
0: are the concepts yeah. that have been disproven by the modern world. Mm-hmm. And that the only people who still buy into that are extremists mm-hmm. in every culture, in every religion. Mm. And so that's why I always say I'm a very proud Jew. I love being Jewish. Um it has nothing to do with Judaism. It's a very small sect of Jewish people who live a very extremist existence. Mm. And to live an extremist existence,
1: you need to isolate yourself from the outside world. Mm. And I think maybe that's that's where I mean that's where some some sort of fascination comes from, doesn't it? Because it is it's these isolated communities and you know whether you're whether you're looking at a cult or you're looking at I mean they can, they can be compared can't they? But you know I think that's our fascination. I mean you can look at the Roman Catholic Church and talk about the extreme end of that spectrum. Same. And that's pretty same. pretty shocking. But there's something I guess that that is I don't know, it's fascinating about these sort of lockdown communities. Um, So so you were a regular girl-ish, you were labelled as the Jewish girl, but, you know, you were bright, you had your whole life ahead of you, you were at this great school, thanks to this financier, and you finished school at what, 18? I finished school at 18. And you get married at
0: 19. 19, Because you have to go to seminary first. I did a year of seminary, teachers seminary, basically where you get even further indoctrinated into the fact that you are supposed to be silent, obedient, modest. So uh, who's there? How,
1: how did you end up there?
0: So it's basically like, you know, in the outside world, you go to high school and you do, you try to work hard so that you can get a good college, that so you can get a good job, right? Mm-hmm. That's the modern trajectory. In my world, you go to a high school, a good high school, so you can get into a good seminary, so that you could get a good marriage the and end so that goal was, is marriage
1: and, and so that the was seminary the goal your parents
0: to, had well that's you. the goal of the whole community every girl my age gets married as right. a teenager unless unless nobody wants to marry them
1: so right you know, sometimes, so there was no course, question there was a no question you of you following a different path no path that's the only path I'll but never just forget, so i'm clear your your parents weren't as strict they weren't living in an isolated community they, they weren't as strict as the as the community you married into is that right no my parents were probably
0: more religious than my husband more
1: extremist um Realist.
0: my mother stopped going to restaurants because it was making idol worship out of food we didn't eat strawberries because they could have some microscopic bug on them. we didn't okay. artichokes or broccoli um We weren't allowed to read secular literature. There was no radio in the house, no newspaper, no magazines, no connection to the outside world, zero. Uh, My brother. So so
1: how did they, how did they rationalize you going to this great school being? Because it was a
0: slow, meaning they, I started off at this great school in Austin. Mm -hmm. And within five years we had moved to Muncie. And my mother, you know, in Austin, my mother started becoming more religious. She put on the wig. She we stopped eating regular food. I stopped being allowed to play with my non-Jewish friends. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere on Saturday, and no more good, you know, no more morning cartoons. My life became very small in Texas, but that wasn't religious enough for them. They wanted a community that believed in those things. So that's why they moved us to Muncie, and that's where everyone lived that way. The, and it's you, the doors of modern life close behind you, and you live in an isolationist bubble where everyone on the outside
1: is the enemy. So, you went to this year finishing school, for, you know. I, to I went
0: school. to a religious, crazy religious school starting in fifth grade.
1: And that was your final year. And, and
0: no, my final year was in, I mean, in in Texas, was in fourth grade. And then I spent a little time in fifth grade in Texas and then switched in the beginning of the year and moved to Muncie. And so starting from fifth grade okay. onwards, I'm in this extremist, closed, isolated community.
1: Okay. So you're at a different school. You're not the only Jewish girl anymore. Exactly. Now Now Everyone
0: everyone's religious. And Got I feel you. more out of place there than I ever felt in the private school. I was going to say, Texas. could you
1: feel it happening? Could you feel? Could you feel that it wasn't you and wasn't? I right was just the Russian girl. I was the Russian girl,
0: mm. and I so, was the only Russian girl at the time. Don't forget, this yeah. is pre Perestroika. <laughs> this is before people got used to Russians being around. I mean, there weren't any. I mm. was so rare, and so it was a big deal. This mm. Russian Jewish girl who didn't speak Hebrew, who had. 11 years of age, a 10 years old, didn't know all the laws, didn't know how to dress properly, hadn't gone through the same educational system that they'd been through, didn't know about modesty and that I can't talk to boys and all of that stuff. So again, always at a disadvantage, always the odd man out, because when I was in the outside world, I was the Jew. When I was in the Jewish world, I was the Russian.
1: But you tasted <laughs> this outside world and suddenly it was taken away from you. So that was what... Yeah. Your- about terrible. 15. So no, I was I was 10. 10, okay, no. about 10. So you end up in Muncie with your parents, with your family, mm-hmm. with your siblings, and you finish high school and you go and do this year. And at, at what point do you meet your first husband? And how so did that like come So basically the way about? that it
0: works is you go to seminary where you get further indoctrinated and trained yeah. to be a Judaics teacher, right? It's one year. And it's about as close to a college as I am to a six foot tall football player. Yeah. <laughs> so, no comparison, right? You're only learning Judaics. Um, you're in school from eight in the morning till six at night. There are neighborhoods in Israel, in Jerusalem, you can't walk through because there are guys who walk there. I mean, it's it's you can't even. It's unfathomable. It's a world so far removed from anyone anyone's current modern existence. Just think, mm. the eighteen hundreds. Or Handmaid's Tale
1: Minus. All yeah, things, I've watched a few, documentaries, I have to say. So yeah, I am yeah. So but it's you hard go to from unless there, you've seen that, it's hard to it's hard to
0: imagine that it, it happens in today's modern society. Mm-hmm. And so then you come back and you if you're lucky you get a teaching job because that's what everyone did when I was coming out of school. That was the only job for a good religious girl, unless you wanted to be a babysitter or a nanny or have a nursery in your, uh, you know, basement. Those were the jobs that women did. Always childcare, always within the community, and um, and then you start dating. And now dating for me is nothing like dating for you. Think Bridgerton. It's like Bridgerton minus the balls and minus the fancy dresses. Right. It's you get set up. Your parents make the decision. They choose say, who you go. If you're out gonna like.
1: give me Jean, what's his face? I mean, I, I, would take it. Anyway. You'd you take it, yeah. <laughs>
0: but you know, I mean, and again, not- minus the fabulous clothes and the super good looking, you know. But you know that it's the world is you have a matchmaker. There's a lot of defined rules as what you can and cannot do on a date and how many dates you're allowed to go on. So. I averaged three dates before the guy proposed. So we're talking nine hours in someone's company, and then you have to make a decision as to whether or not this person should be in your life forever, not just be in your life, but be your master and commander, right? Because you're supposed to be obedient and subservient to your husband. So you're literally choosing your master. Um, it's a really awful process, especially when you're a teenager. I was 19 years old, I knew nothing about anything. You're only allowed to go out for three hours. You can't be alone ever, right? A man and a woman forget about not being allowed to touch each other or kiss or shake your hand before you get married. You have to marry someone without ever touching them. You're also not to be allowed to be alone in a room alone with them. So you have to go on a date in a public setting. That's why you may notice next time you walk into a hotel lobby in New York, you'll see a guy in a black hat in a suit sitting looking very seriously and a very well dressed young lady at the table next to him. Mm-hmm. My community, a lot of dates occur in hotel lobbies because there's people walking around and you can sit down and talk to someone and it's in a public setting. So you have no alone time. You've got somewhere between nine and 18 hours to make your decision. And you can only say no so many times before your parents have had enough and say, like they did to me, Julia, I because he was my third. I was going to say, he was just
1: remind me your first husband's name?
0: Yosef. That's it. So, Yosef, he was your third. He was my third. And by my third, my parents were like, Julia, this is ridiculous. He's not a mass murderer. This is the man you're marrying. Stop being so picky. Because I said no to the first guy. That was a big drama. I said no to the second guy. That was a big drama. I said no to the third guy, too. Went on a massive hunger strike. (laughs) I died so badly. Did not want to marry him, but to no avail. So, so yeah, you, yes, so, so was it?
1: So Joseph yes, was it? I mean, he he seems like a very kind, kind, Isn't, nice by man. The way, he's a
0: lovely human being. Yeah, I've he never had across. anything against him. In fact, the opposite. We're really good friends. Yeah, I love you. And I have to tell you something super beautiful.
1: When the show came out, first of all, he supported the show. Came on. The I mean, show. phenomenal. You've got to give him that. And that's I mean, big, big, I, I watched big. that and I thought. Good for him. I mean, yeah. this is, yeah, it's
0: really brave. He's obviously very
1: happy now, isn't he? Yeah,
0: he is very he happy. Marries. I love his new wife. She's delightful. She's such a wonderful human being. And when the show came out, he got a lot of flack for the, from the community. um And, you know, they wanted him to disavow me publicly and come mm. out against me. Mm, I'm not and surprised. And you know what he did instead? He sold his house, took off his black hat, and left the community.
1: Did he really? Yeah. He's Why not here you? anymore. You've liberated. He's, He's probably very grateful to you. You should know that
0: he called me because he proposed to me in a parking lot after davening the, after making the afternoon prayer. And the proposal was Will you be my Aisha's Which means, Will you be my woman about? Okay. About as sexy as dentistry. Although I'm sure dentistry can be very sexy to some people, not personally to me. So, um, not the greatest of proposals, but we didn't know each other. Spent literally a few hours together to his new wife, Eliza, They went to Puerto Rico and he proposed in Puerto Rico. What made me so happy is he called me from Puerto Rico and said, thank you for making my life so much better.
1: Aww.
0: So I have so much respect for him. He's such a dear friend. He's a good man. He just We weren't meant to be married. Oh, we didn't work so together nice. as a couple. Well, oh Lovely, that. That lovely, is- lovely, lovely human being. Oh. And I'm very grateful to have him as a dear friend in my life. And I'm grateful and you have your for beautiful his wife's children. friendship. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that's heaven to hear. How lovely. Um, so can you tell us, you were together for how long? three years. Wow. And how quickly did you have children? Well,
0: you know, there's no birth control, right? So mm. I, we started trying to have kids right away. But... God had a little pity on me and because I'd been raising children since I was 10 years old. My first sibling was born. Oh, actually, I left uh, Austin when I was 11, not 10. Sorry about that. But um, I've been raising children since I was 10 years old because my siblings were so much younger than me. Mm-hmm. To the point, and I'm not exaggerating, they called me mom, literally. Like they thought I was their mother. When I got engaged and was starting to pack out to leave they packed their bags they thought they were coming with me i'm like no guys you're staying i'm going so i'd already raised seven children and then i have been changing diapers non-stop since i was 10 years old so when i got married i didn't get pregnant for a year and a half and it was the first year and a half since i was 10 years old that i didn't have to change diapers and birth babies and feed babies and put babies to bed and clean up their vomit and all the other stuff that you know what's like when newborns are around. I did all those things for my siblings, and so
1: you had a break. I
0: gave can birth I, can a I year and a half after my marriage.
1: Can I ask you? And and if this is too personal, everything's open. No, tell go me, for it. But go for it. But what is it? I presume you you get married a virgin. Do you? Once you're engaged, you go on subsequent dates. Is there? No. There's is no tactile zero you're not allowed to touch and then what you you get and you get married and and then what your wedding night that's it off you go I mean how is I mean it's impossible it's so frightening and crazy you have to understand
0: you have to take it back five more steps so frightening imagine never being allowed to Well, I had. I was very naughty. I was very naughty. And I, well, I got kissed by a guy. I didn't actually give him permission, but we won't talk about that. So I did have one kiss. Was right. um, it was more like a flood deluge. So not the greatest of experiences. You know, people who kiss and you get literal yeah. Wet. liquid flooding wet that's what it was like so not the greatest experience one kiss but I wasn't supposed to do that I wasn't allowed to shake a man's hand but that guy was the only person I'd ever spent any time alone with and all we did is kiss once but basically you're not allowed to talk to guys you don't go on dates there's no prom there's no mingling of the sexes at all whatsoever until you date from there. You don't shake a man's hand. You don't kiss him. You're certainly not going to have sex with him. And then you go from that, from knowing nothing about men, from having no physical relationship to being a teenager and having to get naked in front of a total stranger and having sex.
1: And is this night one? Is this like your bags are there now, that's your home, that's it?
0: That's right. And there are a lot of rules that are not laws, that are stringencies that only my community practices. But my husband was told, that there should be no foreplay uh, because if he spends too much time having sex with me, it's going to take away from his concentration on his Torah learning. There on should his Torah. be on his Torah learning, right? Studying the, oh, right. the Talmud and all that stuff. That's right, right, his right. purpose in life. is uh, uh, Every man, his purpose in life in this world is to study the Torah, to study uh, the, the, the commandments, right? Sure, uh, sure. And to delve his whole life in, in Torah study. And so, Foreplay, cuddling, all those things were considered extraneous. And if he was thinking about me, he wasn't thinking about his Torah learning. So he wasn't allowed. He was told, no foreplay. When you finish in it out, out, you know, men and women sleep in different beds. So he was told, once you've had sex, just get out of the bed and go into your own bed. There is. Uh, and is that session. how you live?
1: Is that how you live? That's how I live. With the duration an, of you.
0: Yeah. And there's an expression, which means don't converse with the woman too much. Okay. And the, the commentaries, the rabbis explain this to mean that it's referring to your wife. Don't speak so often to your wife because it will take away your concentration. So if you're not even allowed to speak often to your wife, of course, you're not allowed to speak at all to any other woman. But that is the basis of the marriage. Be silent. No affection, and your purpose is to disappear as much as humanly possible, so that you don't det- distract your man from his Torah study.
1: Wow! Wow, well, another world. And um, so you—you you got pregnant, and you had Bat You then had three other children.
0: Ten pregnancies, six miscarriages. Oh, children.
1: I'm sorry. Gosh. Wow, that's tough. I could that's have really 10 kids. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You <I> can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you had your four wonderful children. As you were going along, I mean, you you left Muncie in what year? I left at uh, the end
0: of 2012, like the end of November 2012. So basically and this, 2013.
1: And, and you spent how, do you say 23 years there? In Muncie? From the time
0: yeah. I was 11 until I was 42. Okay. So 31 years.
1: And as you were going along, years of
0: marriage, 31 years of living in that community.
1: And as you were going along, having your children, was it? were you sure at some point you were going to go? Were you ever happy? Was it, I'll have my children and I'll get to a point? Or was it a process when you just... It was a process.
0: It was really a process. It was a very long and arduous journey. And I started preparing for my escape 10 years before I actually walked out the door.
1: So how, it was how do you extremely prepare, slow. How do you prepare for that?
0: Well, in a way you can't, because I always tell people, look, I knew that I wanted to leave. And I knew that I was completely ignorant about the ways of the modern world, right? Uh, so I tried to educate myself. I had no I had real education. I knew nothing about the world, really nothing. and." I started educating myself, reading very purposefully, 90% nonfiction at that point. And it was, you know, Euripides, Voltaire, Descartes, Cicero, Spinoza, it was the philosophers, it was the scientists, it was the historians I read, the you know, Gibson's fall, you know, rise and fall of the Roman Empire, like, you name it, I've read it, um, to the point where my daughter's in Stanford. My son just graduated Columbia. And I made them send me their reading list every semester. <laughs> and I still hadn't seen a book I, that I had not yet read.
1: And how are they in Stanford? Because you know they're growing up in this community too. How, how have they got there? It's, a, it's hard work, determination, um,
0: and a desire, a refusal to allow anything to stand in their way. That's really it. I mean, Shlomo, Shlomo could not write a grammatically correct sentence in English and just graduated Columbia University. And, and- Miriam had never seen a computer until she was 13 years old. Mm. And she's the youngest person in Stanford history. She gave a class in augmented reality as a freshman. This is a girl who six
1: years before didn't have a computer. And, and were, your, were, you, were you sort of breaking boundaries in sending them for well, this of education I would
0: never have been able to do that there had I stayed Miriam would have been married off she would have gone to a year and right, right, right. she would have married off in 19 okay all
1: of this so I all those decisions today came post leaving. okay That's so you left and you said you were 30 what when you left I left when I was 42 Forty-two. Sorry, you lived in this world for nine years. Wow, so you left. (laughs) It's not you left when you were forty-two, and did you confide in anybody that you were going to do this? Not a single human being. No one. Not one single person. And and so, you woke up one day. You're forty-two. How old are your children at that point?
0: So it's not that I woke up one day. It's again a very gradual process. I started educating myself. So I mean, I mean, like the 30s. day you left, the day you, I left, uh, it was the day I left was because the night before, a teacher had accused my daughter of cheating, and it was a, I think this first time that I'd ever seen my daughter cry because she's like we're tough cookies, we're not big cryers, and she was accused of cheating because her answer was too good, um, and she's a girl, she shouldn't be able to give that answer, so she must have. Gotten help from somebody, and I watched her devastation. And is this about Miriam? Miriam. I watched her devastation, and I realized I gotta get out before they destroy her. Um, Miriam is in Stanford, she is bisexual, she has a girlfriend. Had I not left, she would be 19, married off to a guy, certainly not going to Stanford University um Her life would have been completely different. Yeah. So she was, she was that last straw.
1: Yeah.
0: That actually made me pack up and get out the door. If it wasn't for her, I would still be. Well, I'd probably be dead. I would have killed myself. I wouldn't have made it much longer. I I couldn't survive much more in that world. So I just probably wouldn't be alive anymore.
1: So she saved my life. So you, you, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. You woke up, or you went home that night, or you woke the next day and you said, right, that's it, that's it. And the children are how old at this point? So
0: is married already. Um, she's living with her new husband, Ben. And can Slo-mo's I ask...
1: Lutcheva, um, yeah. who I know is sadly not with her husband anymore. But um, she's a great girl. She's got she's awesome amazing. style. Um, did she go through the same process meeting Ben that you went through? No, she did go
0: through the shidduch system, right? The matchmaker system. But by then... I was already halfway out the door. I was extremely modern, right? I was going to movie theaters. Mm -hmm. I was still covering myself. I was still wearing my wig, but I didn't believe in any of the stringencies. I was going to follow the law and nothing but the law. And so um, she met Ben um, at a Shabbos meal, right? At a Friday night. You know, that's the only time girls and guys got to see each other is if their families got together for a meal. And she met him and... Instead of going behind my back and dating him, she knew that I wouldn't mind. And so she came and told me, Look, I met this guy, you know, at that Java's table and I'd like to date him. And I said, No problem. Come to the house. Don't you don't have to hide anything from me. I'm game. And so she actually chose Ben. She, okay. she didn't marry through the system. Okay. But the system still impacted her because. They weren't allowed to touch before they got married. I was they would say, never have gotten married if they could have had sex with each other. The way, you know, you're a horny teenager, the way you can have sex, the only way you're allowed to have sex is if you're married. Yeah. So, of course, they wanted to get married immediately because they just wanted to sleep together.
1: Mm-hmm. So, sorry, you were saying, uh, and I was just keen to ask you about Richard's, um meeting of, of Ben, but you were saying that, she, telling me the ages of your children when you left
0: nine years so, ago. So Batsheva was married, Shlomo was in yeshiva, Miriam was 13, and Aaron nine years ago. He's 15 now, so Aaron was six.
1: So, so what you packed your bags? Did you tell your husband when you were going? Do you just go? What do you do with the children? I was screaming like
0: a banshee, literally throwing shit all over the house, packing things. I threw things, I yelled, I made so much noise. I, you know, miss calm, collected, organized housewife went completely crazy. Lost her shit. Lost her shit. I was throwing things haphazardly into suitcases. And then I just walked out the door and he didn't stop me because I think he didn't know what had hit him. It was just like, what just happened?
1: A rabbit in headlights. And so you walked out of the door and what did you say to the children? So, my
0: travel was already married, Shlomo was already in yeshiva, so it was really Miriam and Aaron at home. I didn't say anything to Aaron. I told Aaron I'm traveling for business. And he's six years old. He wouldn't know that women in my community don't travel for business generally. Um, and Miriam, I told her what I was doing and she was like, yay, can I have a computer? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the year she got her computer. And where did you go? I went to a hotel in Manhattan.
1: And Did you have your own money?
0: Yes, I had saved some money up. Not a lot, very little, but I'd saved some money up. And I went to a hotel. And I was 42 years old, and it was the first time in my life I'd ever slept alone, that I wasn't in my father's house or my husband's house or with my father or with my husband by myself on my own, chose where I wanted to stay and stayed there. And that may seem like no big deal to a modern woman, but to me, it was my first taste of freedom, getting to sleep alone in a room I
1: chose and I paid for. And I mean... Is that the most exciting thing? or That was literally the most exciting was, thing. I was going to say the most sickening <laughs> thing, but somebody said to my daughter the other day, remember that usually excitement and butterflies are linked to each other. Nervousness <laughs> and excitement is linked. Um, so a bit of everything. And have you worked in the community? What You said you'd save some money. How do you have a, a job? high
0: school teacher. Right. So I had two jobs most of the time. I taught one high school in the morning, one high school in the afternoon. And I also sold life insurance. That was oh. my... Freedom Fund was. Uh, I, I secretly took my Series Six and Sixty Three. Um, I convinced MetLife to hire me um, with my wig and my stockings and my long dress and my button collar, um, and they did. And that's how I made my money.
1: And why did so you imagine that you were going?
0: Well, I think he figured it out at some point because I. It's funny because I always thought he didn't know, and then recently we've been having conversations. Of course, I did. Of course I knew. but no one else in the community knew and yeah. um and basically you know i couldn't sell to people in the community because i didn't want people to know i was selling life insurance yeah and so i had to i was the world's greatest cold caller uh, this <laughs> is before the do not call laws thankfully um, and MetLife would have this contest every week who could get the most meetings from cold calling and I won every week because that's all I had. Mm. I couldn't reach out to any of my connections, right? Mm. Um, and that's how I made it my money. In between classes, your, teaching, nursing, teaching, selling.
1: What was your husband's career? or was your husband's, your, your first he husband's was career. uh
0: it, You know, he learned in yeshiva. The original plan was for him to become a rabbi. But as I became more modern, that wasn't what I wanted. And he realized as well that, We just don't have the money for him to study. I mean, if you're going to have 20 children and you're making $60,000 a year, kind of problematic. can't really afford to support your children. And so he left the yeshiva and became a trader. And now he owns an energy company.
1: Um, So you have your night in your hotel. Uh, I think career-wise, the next thing is your shoe brand. That's right. A month later.
0: January, I start. Julia shoes. I leave well, in November. A month and a half later, I start Julia shoes.
1: I mean, wow. I mean, it said that you were obsessed with fashion magazines when you were younger. But how the hell do you know what did you? how, where were the supplies? Where did it come from? How did you make it happen? How, I knew nothing, nothing. How did you fund it? Was, Is your husband trying to get you back at this point? Oh, or oh did yes. I- oh,
0: the first four years that I was out, he was 100% convinced that I'd had a nervous breakdown and lost my mind, and that I was going to come home. It just, no one could get their head around it because I had been so religious in my community. I believed in hook, line, and sinker. And to go from that to disappearing and not doing anything was a big shock to most people. You know, they just didn't know what was inside because I kept everything, everything hidden. And I think when I came out, it was time travel. It was. It was 200 years, a world 200 years in the future from where I was brought up. And so when I managed that and I survived that, I said to myself, "If I can time travel, I can do anything." I'm starting a shoe brand. Well,
1: were you see, were you able to see your children? Were you able to get back in and see them? Or was there? So a my husband to and I really- is
0: again a really special person, and we made a deal. Um, I would come home for every Shabbos, for every holiday. Was it Shabbos? A Shabbos is like you know the Sabbath, the Sabbath, right? Okay. So Friday night, Sunday. Friday, Friday, Saturday yeah, night, Friday night,
1: dinner. okay, yeah.
0: So I would come home for every Shabbos, I would come home for every Jewish holiday. We would not get divorced, we wouldn't sign any papers. Um, and so we would pretend to still be husband and wife in the community. He said I could do whatever I want in the outside. What a legend. I can date. What a legend. And, and so I know, and we made that deal, and that's what I did. I went, drove back up to Muncie every week, spent Shabbos there, and got to have a relationship with my children.
1: Amazing. Give him He's a good um, man. And, and, you know, I'm sure to lots of people, they think, well, obviously, but, you know, people are, are a product of their upbringing, right? and It is exactly. Um, so, He's a, he was as much a victim as yeah, I am. And he had the foresight fight to support you. Amazing. Um, maybe he knew deep down. It wasn't right as well. Um, I mean,
0: clearly, look at him now. He's yeah, out. Yeah, he took off yeah. the black cat. He wears jeans and t-shirts.
1: It's a miracle. And, I mean... Shoes. So, how, how did you get this? How did you get Julia Hart's shoes going? So, I
0: literally got investors in the craziest places—in a doctor's office, on an airplane, at a restaurant. You I got the gift one, of the gab,
1: clearly. That's the thing.
0: Like, I'm a one woman PR machine. I was the brand, and so I sold it every second of every day, wherever I want. You couldn't stand next to me in the supermarket aisle without my sharing my brand with you and talking about my amazing shoes. It's all I talked about. It's all I cared about. It's all I did.
1: Shoes, shoes, shoes. Julia really Hart, Julia really Hart, the brand. Uh, and the people listening, I mean, you are teeny tiny in every way. <laughs> they are, is, is the USP, because I've seen you wear them on the show. Is, is, are they all other platforms? on, hold on, hold on. Think of a Saint platform and it's a five that, and a half and then, inch and then like
0: multiply that by two but here's what's and... beautiful is that between this is why I only wear platforms because between the platform and the heel is actually only like a two se- and two inch arch mm. so it's very comfortable They're I design these.
1: who's the designer in the nineties? I 80s. designed them
0: so it's really funny because Gucci, I love them very much. Since I don't have my own company anymore, they let me design shoes that then they produce for me. So oh. Um, oh. so those shoes, like for example, these shoes that I just showed you, you can't buy them in the store. Oh. I designed them, I made them. So there's, of course, like certain prototypes you're allowed to pick from. So you know, I can't go completely crazy, but it's really been very helpful to me because then I get to play around and design the shoe that Amazing. I want.
1: Yeah. So if you were watching, yeah, th- think of, think of Sano or think of uh, the Valentino platforms at the moment and uh, mo- double that and you're, you're along the, the right lines. Um, Where are they sold today? How is the shoe business going? Well, I closed it when I became creative director of La Perla because I couldn't do
0: both things. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, and I sold the use, the lifetime use of the patents, of my patents pending, of my comfort, you know, because I, change the structure of a shoe to make it more ergonomically designed so that the pressure points were spread across your entire foot, thereby alleviating a lot of the pain associated with walking in high heels. Hmm. So I sold that technology and I took that money and gave it all to my investors so that within two years, they made a 15% return on their investment. I didn't keep a dollar of it. And
1: uh, and then you got involved I in that. The
0: director of La
1: yeah. Well, amazing. Do you regret selling it? Yeah, I do. I should have stuck to my own thing instead of oh, helping you. You can do shoes again. Else.
0: There's time, There's room for lots there's of shoe There's always brands. time. That's right. There's that's right. room for there's lots, lots of time. shoe brands. And everybody um, keeps asking for them. So I'm going to have to do it eventually. Yeah. If I get another, I think it's over literally like hundreds of thousands of women. So I'm like, okay, I better start and do another shoe I brand again. I can believe it. everybody wants my
1: shoes I know and (laughs) I know and the clever thing is as you say the foot and the heel is is actually not that high it's 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 incredibly on this killer platform crazy comfortable I know a few little people and they wear heels all the time so I get it Mm -hmm. um so La Perla how did you get that gig so I went to
0: Hong Kong I met with this guy I wanted my shoes so by uh in 2000, end of 2014, my shoes were already being sold in Galeries Lafayette in Paris, in Gaway Lafayette, Dubai, in farfetch and a bunch of stores all over the world. And so the one place that I- oh, Amazing. Can done, we just say,
1: how many years have gone <laughs> since you've left Muncie? No, no. So at that point, it had been less than two years, a year and a half. A year and a half. So anyone says, anyone who says she married a second husband for the job. Put that in the mix. Well, sorry. Yes. Uh, well, let's talk about that for a second. We're because it's, just look-
0: factually, it's factually impossible because what happened was I went to Hong Kong to meet with this guy to get my shoes into Asia's stores in Asia because that was a market my shoes were not in and I very badly wanted to be in. I meet this guy, I show him my shoes, he loves them. And more importantly than him loving them all the women in his office, because I came with two giant suit shoe cases, <laughs> and I, you know, and I brought shoes in every imaginable size. So, because I, what I've learned is show is much better than tell. And yeah. what I noticed is that when I bring the shoes and people put them on their feet, they don't want to take them off. They're so <laughs> crazy comfortable. And so that's what I did. I started taking shoes out. He you said, you're office. a PR
1: machine. You gotta, you know, you gotta get your that's it. Out.
0: Always, always selling. And so he, Loves them. He sees all the women in his office falling all over themselves to take a pair. And so he tells me, Look, I can help get you into stores in Asia, but it's going to take a long time. I have a better idea for you. So he tells me that he is on the board of La Perla and that the owner of La Perla, Silvio Escalia, had been trying to make La Perla into a full fashion brand for the last four years, had gone through four creative directors had sold shoes, but nothing was working. And he said, but your shoes are so comfortable. Maybe there's a way to do a co-branding between our company and Perlow. So he tells me design shoes. Here's the collection, the latest collection, draw some shoes. And if I like them, I'll send them to the owner. If the owner likes them, maybe there'll be a co-branding. Okay. So I designed these shoes. I don't say them so myself. They were Fabulous. And I send them to this guy in Hong Kong. And I don't remember what I call him in the book because I changed everybody's name. So I don't want to use his real name. And I don't remember what the fake name I put in the book was. Um, But he flies with me and we go to Tokyo together. This is now after Fashion Week, February 2015. I meet Silvio for all of 30 minutes with someone He's else who so he was, he was the owner, he was second who then husband. became my husband yeah yeah who then became my husband and um after i and it was a very terse kind of cold conversation i did not trust him so much because i had read about him and i saw that he sold a telecom com- company and bought a lingerie brand and a modeling agency so i was like <laughs> hmm, player no thank you <laughs> and so i was equally cold back. And then after that 30-minute meeting uh, where he gave his stamp of approval, I then flew to Bologna and met with the creative director, with the merchandising team, with the CFO, with everybody there. And they're the ones who gave me the job. I never saw him after that until months later once I was already working there. And don't forget, I wasn't working for La Perla. It was the co-branding between my company and their company, right. I was designing shoes for them, but it wasn't Julia Hart, the person designing shoes. It was Julia Hart, the brand. So the shoe said Julia Hart for La Perla. So it's just factually inaccurate. I mean, it's a physical impossibility in the timeline. It just doesn't make sense as is the fact that, you know, so first that was the accusation. Oh, she just married to get her job. Logistically well, not possible.
1: You've heard it here, people. Not the case. Not the case. And, and then it and, was, and,
0: oh, and she married him for his money. He's a billionaire, she married from his money. Guess what? He's not a billionaire. He wasn't a billionaire when I was married him. I just kept his secrets because I was in love with him. But the reality was that by the time I met him, he had lost over 98% of his fortune. He had lost close to a billion dollars. He is as you know far away from being a billionaire as as you know as I
1: am. <laughs> and, and, and elite was elite going at this point. So he brought La Perla. He was and trying he to sell
0: elite um, in two thousand seventeen and two thousand eighteen. He couldn't even sell it for seventy million. He got a non binding offer for elite at seventy million, and it never even came through. And in two and a half years under my leadership. Jeffrey's valued us between 500 no, sorry, between $700 and $1.1 billion in two and a half years through COVID. It's the only company that that man has that hasn't failed. Okay. Every other single company failed. Okay.
1: We're going to leave it there. This is never and happened And then we'll before, continue. But I've been on hooks. So this is part one. We're going to come back and find out what you did to turn that business around, how you've become a I'd reality star and and it. everything that's happened to your wonderful family. And um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for today. Lovely to Thank with you, with you for listening. And I will look forward to part two. Not Thank you so that. much. Because Take care. Bye. Bye, bye. bye. So as you heard there, uh, we ran run out of time. Julia had another interview to get to. Uh, that's genuinely Never happened before, but what a woman she is. And really, we're just getting to the start of her journey into the public eye. Uh, So that's it for today. That is part one of our In Conversation with podcast with Julia Hart. Uh, If you enjoyed that, then do please leave us a comment, subscribe, tell your friends to listen to. And we'll be back with part two very soon. Bye-bye.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.